also welcome you. If you're visiting with us, we're very glad you're here. Let me just tell you what's about to happen if you're not quite used to maybe even being in a church. Uh, We think the Bible is God's communication to us to be paid attention to, and it actually brings us life, which we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, That might be something you're interested in, maybe just curious about. But either way, we're going to spend the next, I'm not going to say an amount of time, because that would be distracting if I don't hold to it, next amount of time to open up God's word that tells us about himself and see what it has for us. So I hope that if you're visiting, you are very helped by this and have been helped already in all that we've been doing. I'm not an art connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, If you were to pick up and read a textbook on art history, by doing that, you will know way more about the subject than I do. But I've always been curious about art. been curious about artists when it comes to the subject and the matter of meaning. There seems to be broad consensus among artists and those who love art that artists must not reveal what their work is about. I hope I'm not overgeneralizing. If you are an artist, I apologize if I am. I've just been struck by this. And, and I think I've come to understand why. That's not a criticism by any means. For more developed art aficionados, that allows them, as an observer or receiver of art, the space and freedom to delve into the work themselves and find the meaning and significance on their own. I lack that ability. For some reason, I just, there's a barrier to entering into that fully. Maybe I need to learn more about art. I often feel like when it comes to art, I'm on the outside trying to figure out what's going on inside the house of art. Without the artist's explanation of what they mean in their work, I feel like art will just remain a mystery to me. So I just beg for meaning. I find the same true is true about God. In the Bible, we're told that God is three persons, and yet one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet for us, the only physical, tangible representation of God on this earth was his Son, who appeared 2,000 years ago and left. In the Bible, we get historical descriptions of his life, his words, his actions. And while we don't know exactly what he looked like, we have a picture of who he was in his character and person. And yet there remains of him this Trinitarian side. The Son involved with the Father and the Spirit. And that all remains mysterious. As does the whole relationship between the three. As if we are on the outside trying to figure out what's going on inside this relationship. This Trinitarian Father, Son, and Spirit life. And without an explanation, the Trinity would remain A mystery to us. Enter John 17. While the truth of the Trinity is affirmed throughout the Bible, you'll find evidence of it all the way in the first chapter. I think that John 17 may be the most vivid picture and explanation we get about what the Trinitarian life is like. 
Here, Jesus, the Son of God, has an extended conversation in prayer with his Father. One that is longer and more relationally illustrative than any of the prayers recorded in any of the other Gospels. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be studying this prayer in John 17. Jesus is praying at a unique moment in his life. His prayer teaches his disciples. It teaches us. It reveals the relationship of God. The prayer tells us about the Trinity. The prayer shows us the Trinity. Jesus both asks for and exemplifies what he's praying for at the same time. In his prayer, there are requests. And in those requests, we see what God, Father, Son, and Spirit are motivated by. Here we get to peer into the reality upon which all other reality is built. And so I hope you're excited. So much to find here. So much to see. Here is an invitation to come to the edge of our finite and strictly physically limited world. And gaze into what has always been. Even before we were. I was telling someone earlier this morning with that introduction behind me that John 17, 1 through 5. And maybe the endeavor to come in and see these majestic truths. It, it, it feels to me like I am with you on a path and we come upon a huge boulder in the road. And it's there. We're moving consecutively through this book. And we've come upon these five verses. And I say, all right, let's see if we can measure this thing. And we get all our arms around it. And we have not even begun to feel out how far around this thing goes. Uh, And then I say, all right, well, let's just see if we can move it. And we all lift, and the thing doesn't move an inch. I feel like John 17, 1 through 5 is that boulder in a lot of ways. And so whatever I'm about to say, I really am trusting that God will use it. He'll use it whatever way he wants, but we're scratching the surface. We're peering into things that go beyond our comprehension. The prayer is divided into three parts in chapter 17. Verse 1 through 5, which we'll look at today, Jesus prays for himself. Verse 6 to 19, which hopefully we'll come to next week, he prays for his disciples. And then the last part in verse 20 to 26, he prays for the church going forward. So we're going to look at the first section this morning, verse 1 through 5. And let me read that. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Our main question that's going to guide our study of these five verses is this. What does Jesus pray for? What does he pray for? And my prayer is that by this time in Jesus's prayer, we will see the heart of God. 
We will see the relationship between the Trinity and we will see relevance of all that for us. So what does Jesus pray for? Well, the simple answer is glory. Jesus prays for glory. Verse 1. Jesus looks up to heaven indicating he's praying and he asks his father, God, glorify me. He repeats the request in verse 5. Glorify me. And he adds in verse 1 that he wants glory for the Father as well. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's praying for glory. What does that mean? What is glory? Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may find getting your head around that word is still difficult. In my mind, when I think of glory, I think of a bright light. I think of a universal crowning ceremony in front of everybody. I think of reaching the highest status of of kingliness. If you've been here since we started this series, you'll know that we tackled this question back in John 13. Uh, If you're interested to go back and do the deep dive again, uh, all those sermons are on our website. You can go back and listen to John 13. Uh, 33 through 35, I believe it was. Um, So go there. But here's what we found. I'm going to encapsulate it. Glory is the state of living in the presence of God. Experiencing the love of God that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. Glory is enjoying a perfectly loving and unified relationship with God. God's glory is that he is life. He is our life. He is true life. Our glory is in that God is our life. Glory, let me just say that first sense again, is the state of living in the presence of God, experiencing the love of God. The sun in our solar system is a perfect illustration of this. So the earth that we're on could evaporate and all human life with it. The sun would still exist. It wouldn't be true the other way around. The sun could evaporate and we would too. In so many ways, our human life is defined by the sun. It creates the ideal temperature with which to sustain our life. It grows food upon which we depend for life. It provides illumination so that we can see as we go about this life. All human life in some way orients toward and around the sun. And the glory of the sun is that it is the life-giving source. Returning to John 17 with this definition of of the glory of God being that he is life like the sun is to the earth. And we can understand better what it is that Jesus is praying for. Jesus actually makes two requests in this prayer. And we're going to look at those in the rest of our time. What exactly does Jesus pray for when he prays for glory? Well, they both have to do with life. And his first request is this. Jesus asks to bring eternal life from the Father. Look again at verse 1 through 3. Father, Jesus prays, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus asks to bring life from the Father to people. He is asking to be raised up and put in a position of life giver. You see that spelled out in detail in verse 2 and 3. Since you've given me authority over all flesh, now give eternal life through me to all whom you have given. The word flesh here is a word that's used throughout the Bible. And it's an inherently lifeless thing. Uh, When used on its own, it's kind of a thing that represents death, actually. It can be a life thing when understood that there has been life given to the flesh, but it's dependent on life from the outside. And so the Father has, we understand, put the Son in a position over all that dead and otherwise lifeless flesh, and now Jesus is asking to use his authority to put eternal life into flesh, into people. Okay, so if I'm reading this, naturally three questions pop up. What is this eternal life? How does Jesus give it to people? Who does he give it to? Well, the first question, what what is this eternal life? Well, there, it's there in verse 3. It's like he anticipates the question. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus. Is that what you thought eternal life meant? My guess is, is that we often think of life as human existence. And eternal life is human existence that never ends. Right? And so we think of heaven as primarily the place where we go to never die. That's eternal life. And the crossover from not being a Christian to being a Christian, we think of, is when our life of never dying begins. But notice that time is nowhere in Jesus' definition of eternal life. In other words, when Jesus uses the word eternal to describe life, he isn't envisioning a quantity of years. He is thinking about the quality of being in a relationship with God who is life. So I want you to imagine we're back in the solar system again. I want you to imagine that you live outside that, a completely dark and cold planet. One day a spacecraft lands... A human being from Earth aboard comes out, tells you that, that you have been under observation, been watching your life on this cold and dark planet. And that, that space traveler has made the journey to you in order to invite you to come and know life on Earth. You have no idea what they mean by Earth. You've never felt the sun's warmth. You've never seen green grass. But you go. And you land in Yellowstone National Park on a summer day. You step out and you see the wildflowers, the wildlife. You feel the sun for the first time on your body. You've witnessed the beauty of creation. 
And in the moment, you exclaim, now I know what life is. Yellowstone is a pale, pale picture of the reality of the life contained within the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. But what I'm after in that illustration is to take the word eternal that is there in your mind. And if it is mainly about time, I want to change it. And I want to change it to mean fullness and completeness. An existence that is all satisfying, lacking nothing. And totally connected to the nearness and knowing God in relationship with him. That is eternal life. Put a different way, I recognize that that life we are promised does go on forever. There is time associated with it as we come to understand. And, and eternal life going on with God forever, but not because that's what it means to be eternal, but that's what happens when you live in the eternality of God. There's no death there. Before God created the world, there was no time, there was no death, and yet there was eternal life. Without beginning, without end, the Father, Son, and Spirit living in this state. So to be eternally alive was not, in, was not set in distinction from being finite like we think about it. There was no finite. To be eternally alive was God being God. Maybe this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in the world of Narnia. If you've read those books or seen the movies, the children enter the world of Narnia. They live full lives. They grow up. But then when they return to this world, no time has passed. Complete life outside of time. So let's say you're a researcher. And you are given the task to Go in a machine that takes you from today back to when before the world began. And if it were possible, your project is that you observe God's life as he lives it. You'll be gone a hundred years. You will come back with zero findings about observable change in age. Instead, your notes will be full of observations about how Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another in perfect love and beauty and truth. And just to speculate and run to try to grasp, grapple with this, my guess is if you were allowed into that, you would come back yourself not having aged either. But you would come back a completely different person who would then live an entirely different life. True and eternal life emanates from the person of God. To cross over from what is not eternal life to what is eternal life is to come into a relationship with God, to be joined to the Trinitarian life. Do you see what I meant by a boulder? So how does Jesus bring this relationship to people? Well, Jesus indicates that whatever it is, it is about to happen. Since chapter 13, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure from them. And in chapter 16, verse 32, just, ahead, just above, he alludes to a coming hour 
when his disciples abandon him and he is alone with his father. Then in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says, the hour has finally arrived. And in the next chapters, Jesus is arrested. He's tried, unjustly condemned to die a criminal's death. Although he was innocent, he's crucified. And then he's risen from the dead. Jesus knew that this was part of the path ahead of him. To be the life giver, Jesus would first be lifted up in death. Take your Bible and turn just a few pages before this to John chapter 12. Here, before all the sequence of of events start unfolding towards his betrayal even, Jesus tells his disciples ahead of time what's about to happen. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In Jesus' mind, as he prays this prayer, he understands that the way to glorifying the Father, the way to be glorified himself, is for him to go through death on a cross. We think of glory uh, not that negatively. We think of glory as being lifted to a position of recognition and authority in a way that ends up well for us. Jesus thinks of glory as being given a position of authority only to use that authority in sacrifice. Being lifted up on a cross. Suffering for sinners to pay for the wrath they deserved from a holy God and taking that in their place. He thinks of glory as humbly giving himself for our eternal good. So at this point, I want to suggest that death may be more significant or less significant for you than you might have thought. If you're not believing in what Jesus was going to do and has done, if you're not believing that you are a sinner before a holy God deserving of judgment for that sin, if you are not looking to Jesus who has died for you to be the payment for your sin, to be the one who provides forgiveness before God and a way by which you can have access to a relationship with the only God in life with him, if you are not in that place, you might not be fearing death enough. Because death... Your physical death on this earth marks the end of the availability of the eternal life Jesus provides for you. There will be no other opportunity when you've breathed your last to believe in Jesus. But for you, Christian, who believes in Jesus and dreads death, 
perhaps death is less significant than you've been thinking of it. If you're believing in Jesus who brings life to you, you needn't fear death. Because his life will remain even as death has come and gone. It will be like waking up into a relationship you had already started, but now get to know even more fully. So it's very important that each of us find out if we have what Jesus gives, that is eternal life. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus has brought you into relationship with God through his death and resurrection for you? If you do, your death will be a path into eternal life. If you don't, death will cut you off from knowing eternal life with God. And notice that Jesus is claiming and stating what is true, that eternal life comes only through him. There's no other way. No other religion. No other path. Only Jesus was authorized by God the Father who owns life, who is life, and Jesus with him. Only he was the authorized representative to come to this earth and bring life from the source. To bring human form to his relationship with the Father and through it to offer us a way into that and bring us into it. Jesus showed us eternal life. He showed us by being a man who also fully lived with God and for God. Jesus explained what eternal life is, to live in the knowledge and presence of God even when he was here. Jesus gave us eternal life by dying to remove every obstacle that would prevent us from knowing God, our sin, and our death. Jesus leads us into eternal life, going ahead of us through death, back to the Father and resurrection. It all comes from him, through him. There's a wonderful picture of this in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, God gives uh, the prophet Ezekiel a vision. You might be familiar with this vision. He's standing up, elevated, and he sees out in front of him a valley that is full of dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. Very wise answer from Ezekiel. Then God has Ezekiel speak God's word over the valley. And as he speaks, the bones begin to rattle, is what the text says. They rattle. If you can almost hear it. This is rattling of bones. And they start coming together. And this is not CGI. It's the power of God. Bones being pulled together the right place. And joints forming. And tissues. And organs and skin and muscle and then God stops the process and notices has Ezekiel notice that the the bodies the flesh are laying there joined ligament muscle flesh but still corpses because they're not breathing just bodies laying in a valley then God tells Ezekiel to speak to the breath And tell it to come and breathe so that the dead may live. So he does and it happens. And when it's all done, Ezekiel witnesses before him this vast army standing and breathing. When just moments ago it was scattered dry bones. 
That picture shows us the power of God the Father working through the Son to bring eternal life by the Spirit of God. The Father told the Son, go to earth and be among the bones. Be my powerful word that takes men and women and children cast aside in death and sin and begin forming them into new people. Die for them. Rise in victory over their death. Ascend back to me and send your spirit to breathe my powerful word to bring life to their hearts. That I might go into them and we could live together in a new way. I'll live with them in eternal life that comes from God, complete with God's presence, God's understanding, God's motivations, God's desires, a people living on and with and for the life of God. And this is what Jesus has brought to his people. Church, we know God through Jesus Christ. That means eternal life has already begun. We aren't biding our time until we have bodies that will never die. We live now. We live more fully as we come to know more of God through Jesus. That's the life we're in together. We're in eternal living. Our main aim is to help each other live this life with God. And help people who don't know it to find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing God, and if you believe in Jesus, that life has already begun. So take that statement. What I just said, eternal life is knowing God, and that life has begun. Take that statement and think about it this week. Think through it and think how it might reset or reorient other aspects of your life. Eternal life is available in everything you do as a Christian. When you face trial, eternal life is knowing God's presence through it. When you meet loss or disappointment, eternal life is joyful awareness that we will never lose our relationship to the source of life, our Father. When we are tempted to sin, eternal life is choosing what God enjoys and God gives rather than believing the lie that life can be found outside. When we're in our business or in our work or in our employment or at home, eternal life is doing what we do to please God and being satisfied in knowing that he's pleased with us. When we are with our spouse, our family, our friends, eternal life is gratitude and joy that we get to know God and seeking to share our relationship with God with those around us. I feel like we're only scratching the surface, but we got to move on. I hope it leaves you with a desire to know more of this life. Jesus prayed that he might bring that life to you and to me from the Father. And Jesus makes a second request in this passage. Request number two. Jesus asks to return to life with the Father. Look at chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Remember that glory is life in the presence of God, experiencing the love of God for the Father, Son, and Son for the Father. That's the glory in verse 5 that Jesus is looking forward to. After his obedient work to bring life to God's people and give it on earth, he wants to go back home. I think it's easy for us to have a caricature of Jesus Christ, what he was like when he was here. As if he was some kind of like self-sufficient force that floated through life on earth. As if on the outside, he looked like a man. But on the inside, he never really left heaven. He was like kind of like supernaturally always kind of connected in some way. When Jesus was here, he was fully here. Can't you, can't you kind of sympathize with his longing to go back to his father and the way he prays in verse 5? I want to come home now. I want to be back where you are. He left his place with the father. The place... That had no beginning. That he had always been in. In verse 5. He gives voice to a feeling of what he lost. When he came to earth. He gave up presence. In the epicenter of life. To come live among the dead. Christian. He gave that up in order to give you life. It was a costly endeavor. Have you ever had that experience. When. You have the opportunity to do something you really want to do and you know you would really enjoy. But in the moment, you give it up in order to serve someone else in some way. You ever had that experience? It'd be painful sometimes. You know, you get the front row seats to the Chiefs in the playoffs. Then your friend has an accident and instead of going, you go to visit them in the hospital and be with them. You postpone your five-day all-inclusive resort vacation to help a church member who's going through a very hard time. If you've ever done anything like that, you have gotten a small taste of the choice that both the Father and the Son made in sending Jesus here to earth. To send Jesus, the Father would lose the presence of his Son with him. Would watch his Son be humiliated and tortured, and crucified. To come, Jesus would lose his place next to his father and trade it for an experience of weakness, separation, and death. And there's something to learn about God's life in this choice. If the glory of God is his life, then the life of God is his love. That is the quality of the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. It is a loving relationship. The Trinity is a place where perfect, other-considering, other-preferring love is flowing freely. It is a relationship where the Son is submissive and not selfish, where the Father is generous and not greedy, where the Spirit is satisfied, not seeking anything more. We get a picture of it in Jesus' words. What is he really after? When he prays, glorify me. What does he follow it up just after that? Verse 1. So that I might glorify you. I want to use the glory you give me to bring it back to you. I want to obey you so that you be glorified. Jesus wants to be the life giver so that people will get to live the life where they enjoy his father. 
And if Jesus, the perfect man, who had perfect desires, longed to be with his father when he was away from him, what must life in the presence of God be like? It must just be the most wonderful thing ever. Now, there were times when Jesus was here and he was treated like a king on earth, the kind of glory we think about. People flocked to him. People praised him. There were times when Jesus was literally offered the world. There was nothing Jesus witnessed on this earth that diverted or diminished his longing to be his father, with his father. There was no show of wealth that he saw that seemed more valuable to him than his relationship to the father. There was no throne or position of power that convinced him to stick around earth just a little bit longer. There was no human-to-human relationship, romantic or platonic. He came from glory with a mission to put glory in our hearts. And then when it was done, he went back as soon as possible. Take it from Jesus. There's nothing better than life with God. He's been there. Believe him. And yet he left that for a time to bring it to you. How much must Jesus love his people to leave that for us? How how much must the father love his people to send his son for us? So I want to ask you. If he has so loved us. How are we returning back to him the love that he has shown to us? Are you thankful? Does it show in how we live? Are we ready to follow joyfully where he leads? Are we reluctant to go when it seems hard? Are we living hoarders lives, always getting, rarely giving? Or are we generous with our time, with our energy, with our finances, with our life? Because Jesus gave up everything for us. Are we regularly expecting that others will prefer us? Or are we looking after their interests before our own like Jesus did for us? There's so much here to think about. I'm going to conclude our time. But let me encourage you to keep dwelling on these things and us together. Remember what's happening here. Jesus is praying for himself in these first five verses when he asks. He asks that his life might be given To bring others life and bring his father glory. He's asking when it's done to return to the source of life in the presence of his father, which will be Jesus' glory. If you are here and you are not following Jesus, is it because you don't want eternal life? Or is it because you don't want the kind of eternal life Jesus gives? If the Son of God lived an eternal life and died to give it to us, why wouldn't you receive it from him today? Church, knowing God is our life and life with God will be our glory. No matter what happens this week, we have eternal life with God to live in today. We have eternal life to come home to one day. For all who have life in Jesus, 
today and forever, you can say that it is well with your soul. Let's pray. Father, we repeat the prayer we prayed. Show us Christ through the preaching of your word. Reveal your glory. Reveal your life. That we might live in it. That we might come to life in it for those who are in death. Lord, show us more. Take us more into the relationship that you've set up through your son Jesus that we might have with you eternally. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.